All right, go ahead, bud. All right, I'm going to come back to that in a second. Um, we're in Nehemiah right now, and I've been reading through Nehemiah, and I just like you, even the pass uh, the passage in Luke that Rachel referenced this morning. Jesus went to his hometown. Nehemiah is about Nehemiah going to his hometown. Reading Nehemiah has had me thinking about my hometown, and my hometown is really small. I checked the population this morning um, as of 2013. 988 people in the whole town. Uh, the, the land area of my hometown of Sagertown, Pennsylvania, the land area is the same as Mayfair. So it's the same size as Mayfair, but for every person in Sagertown, there's 43 people in Mayfair. Um, in fact, uh, Sagertown would only make up 3% of the population of Mayfair. So basically we just have a lot more room. Uh, so uh, the only thing really Sagertown is known for is we have this spring, like freshwater spring in our town. And in the 1800s and early 1900s, we had our own, well, we still have actually our own bottling company. And this is an old Sagertown, it was actually a soda bottle uh, from the early 1900s. This is about 80 years old. I bought it on eBay. It says Sagertown on it. For $6, I got two of them. At that price, I thought, why not? And believe it or not, if you go to Rite Aid to the in the back of the store and buy a gallon of the bottled water, that is from my hometown. My hometown's water is shipped to Philadelphia, among other places. I love that, actually. So if in my refrigerator in my basement, or a.k.a. my apartment, uh, all the water I have in my basement is from my hometown in a bottle from my hometown. I make my coffee with water from my hometown. I'm, I painstakingly take a gallon jug and pour it into this bottle so it looks cool. And then I put it in the fridge to stay cold from my hometown of Sagertown. Uh, just because I, I love my hometown. I'm not moving back or anything anytime soon, but as I've been reading through Nehemiah, it's made me think about my hometown. And my hometown's not going through anything like what Jerusalem was going through in Nehemiah, but I think, I think about the fondness that I have for my hometown. I know that not everybody here thinks fondly of their hometown. A lot of people are happy to get out of their hometown. Then I think about my kids. Aiden, who I had up here, I think, oh man, I, you know, sometimes I'm like, I would love to just take them and take them to my hometown. They grew up in a small town, safe, all the, all the things that we think we want. Then I think my kid's not from there though. My kids are from Philly. That's why Emma is loud and you can't understand her. That's why Aiden always has a mean mug. You know, because they're from Philly. I never, never in my life, I still have a hard time believing it, but I think my kids would grow up more like the Fresh Prince than me. You know, I mean, not, they're not from West Philly or anything. And, uh, but that's crazy to me still, even having lived here over seven years. My kids are from Philly. Like, no matter where my kids go in life, they'll always say, I was born in Philly. That's going to be on them forever. So, 
as much as I'm fond of my hometown, I'm also aware that my hometown is not my kid's hometown. Their hometown is, is Philly. You know, my wife, my wife, my daughter, most of her life, all 17 months of it, most of it was spent in Mayfair on Wellington Street, even. That's as much as I want to give you about my address. I'm not giving you the house number or anything like that. But I, I share that because I want to review really quickly what, what's going on in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not living in his hometown, but he hears bad news about his hometown. He hears that his hometown has been destroyed pretty much. There's not too many people living there. The walls are broken down. It's in pretty bad shape. Uh, the economy's bad. And, and actually, they could be attacked at any time because the walls are broken down and the gates have been burned up. He hears that news, and Nehemiah is nowhere near. His hometown is Jerusalem. Like That's where his family's from, but he's in Persia. In fact, it would take him two months to travel from where he lived to his hometown. Two months. You know, we could, we could travel the whole globe in like two days if we never got off a plane or just did like over. Two months away from where he was from. That's, that is a long way. And he hears, I'm just reviewing real quick from chapter one. He hears word that his hometown has pretty much been destroyed. It's in pretty bad shape, and it actually could get worse. And we looked, uh, I preached la two weeks ago, and Jason Davis preached last week uh, about his response. And his response essentially, if we boil it down, had three parts. He prayed, he grieved, and he fasted. He didn't say, oh, that's too bad, glad I got out of there, which is what a lot of people would say. Glad I got out when I did. His response was to pray, to grieve, and to fast. When you hear about an area being decimated, what's your response? Do you grieve over that? Do you pray for them? Do you even take time to fast? Or do you just think, oh, it's not me. I mean, there's been, we get little, little crises all over the place in the United States, and I've never really lived through one of those. I mean, Katrina. Went to New Orleans afterwards, but I didn't live through that. I watched it on TV. September 11th, I lived about 30 minutes away from there when that happened. Um, so honestly, even 30 minutes away didn't really affect me much. I mean, emotionally it did, but I didn't go. I didn't miss a meal. I didn't miss an hour of sleep. Um, I watched that mostly. Even what happened in Baltimore this week. What's that, 100 miles away? I watched that. I didn't live through it. But, but what, what's our response when those kind of things happen, though? Even if it is 100 miles away, even if it is in another state, we, do we change a channel or scroll past it on our Facebook news feed? Or do we take a minute to pray, mourn, and fast for what's happening out somewhere else that does not directly affect us? Nehemiah prayed, mourned, and fasted. He also confessed the sin of a group of people that he belonged to, even though he wasn't guilty of the sin. I mean, the reason Jerusalem was jacked up is because God was disciplining Jerusalem. You know, it wasn't because the people around Jerusalem were wicked, although they were, and God used them, but they were being disciplined because they had turned their back on God. 
And Nehemiah stood up, and even though he wasn't the one that committed the sin, he was part of the people group that committed the sin, and he said, Lord, we've sinned, forgive us. And I think in that, there's a principle of representation. I mean, it was, prob- it was certainly thousands, if not millions of people in sin, but one man's repentance changed the story. And I think that representation is really important. I'm going to you know, apply this here. I think like, for instance, Josh and Rachel Ellison are in Jordan right now serving Syrian refugees. So one, roughly 1% of our congregation is serving Syrian refugees in Jordan right now, but I think represent, they represent us and God counts our whole church involved in that. Does that make sense? So they represent us. We don't all have to go there to put a smile on God's face. They represent us because we can't all do the same stuff. You know, like on our, on our uh, Saturday night prayer meetings, I don't ask the whole church to come out to those. I just ask representatives from each campus to come out because not everyone can come out to that. But I would like to, I always want to see representation. You know, when we went uh, about a month ago, about 15 people from Truvine went down and spent a Saturday ministering to the homeless. Not everybody could do that that day, but 15 people went. We had people from each campus, and they represented the whole church. Does that make sense? I think representation is an important principle, and I think God honors representation. All right. And then also, uh, Nehemiah prays in response to the news that he heard, and he prays for success when he speaks to this man, which we're going to actually talk about this man today. But he prays for success, which makes me think he had a plan in mind. Like he, You get the end of uh, Nehemiah 1, and it sounds like Nehemiah has a plan in mind. He actually says he was the cupbearer of the king. So I don't have it up on the screen, but really quickly, I just want to read the end of Nehemiah 1. Give me a second to find it, because I was in Isaiah 61. The end of Nehemiah 1. O Lord, I ask you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. Make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man, meaning the king. And then this random phrase at the end of chapter 1, now I was the cupbearer to the king. Let me just explain that before we get to chapter 2. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, which means he, I mean, it's, it's not brain surgery. He carried the king's cup and served the king his beverages. He, he gave the king wine, and back then, you drank a lot of wine. Uh, they didn't have soda. They didn't have juice would turn into wine if you left it too long. Sometimes clean water was hard to find. So often, you were drinking wine a lot. The reason the king had a cupbearer was so that someone could test the wine to see if it was poisoned. So not, I don't know if many people are signing up for that job. There's kind of like three different levels to why Nehemiah has earned the king's trust. Number one, Nehemiah puts his life on the line every time the king sits down to eat. Because Nehemiah has to test that wine. And he's probably testing it before the king even sits down because he's got to know if it kills him quick enough. Can you imagine that three times a day? 
playing Russian roulette with a glass of wine. That's what it amounted to, really. Three times a day, he risks his life. Well, I don't know how many times the king ate back then, but we'll say three times a day, he puts his life on the line for the king. Not only that, if anyone was going to poison the king, they had to go through Nehemiah. Like, Nehemiah had to stave off conspiracies. Say someone was like, hey, let's, you know, let me poison the king's wine, and when he dies, I'll make you second in command. Nehemiah had to prevent conspiracies. Because when your cupbearer is crooked, you're going to die. Right? I heard that in Kensington, talk about their cupbearers. No, I didn't. But uh, he had to prevent other people from poisoning it. And Nehemiah could have poisoned him himself if he'd have wanted. And no one would have known. So not only did Nehemiah risk his own life for the king, he himself did not take the king out. And thirdly, he kept other people from taking the king out. So because of that, the king trusted Nehemiah, and the king knew Nehemiah. So if we go to Nehemiah chapter 2, I have the uh, passage up on the screen, I believe. Uh, this is just the first 10 verses. Next week, uh, Pastor Luis will be here, and he'll preach on the rest of chapter 2. This is the first 10 verses of Nehemiah 2. It came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Next slide. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that I may that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was upon me. One more slide. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, when Sanbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So go back to the first slide for me. So Nehemiah hears what's going on in his hometown. He has a little bit of a breakdown. He prays to God for favor for the king. And then that was in the month of Kislev. You guys know when Kislev is. Oh, it actually is. Uh, no, sorry, Nissan is in April. You were close, Scott. It's like uh, beginning of um, December, like end of November, beginning of December. That's in, on the Hebrew calendar. 
It says here that it came about in the month of Nisan, which would be like March or April on our calendar. That's when he gets to speak to the king. So I don't know if you realize this, but this, this did not happen overnight. This uh, idea that God gave him, it was at least four months before he got to talk to the king about it. I know in the Bible it's only two verses, but sometimes two verses in the Bible is a long time. And it was four months. Now I know in the big picture, four months doesn't sound like a long time, but when you're going through something, four months feels like a really long time. When, when God tells you something and you're waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it, I mean, I, after a week, I start, I'm like, God, did you really say that? It's been a week. After a month, I might have even forgotten about it. Two months, three months, four months. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get ideas that don't last four months. They die real quick. So for Nehemiah to stick with something for this long, which I know four months is not a, it's not a lot in the big picture, uh, but when you're going through it, it does feel like a lot. So for four months, Nehemiah holds on to this, and then the, the king sees him sad. So four months after hearing the news, he's still upset. He's still broken up over this situation. The king asks why he's sad, because he knows he's not sick. And it's sadness of heart. So the fact that the king even asked that means that they had some sort of relationship where the king cared. Because again, Nehemiah has been putting his life on the line for the king three times a day. And if I was Nehemiah and knew that I could die at any day, that four months would be creeping along real slow. You know, you're talking 360 times he drank wine with the potential of being killed before he ever got to fulfill his destiny, right? It's a lot. So the king and Nehemiah have a little bit of a relationship, and the kings back in those days, the kings actually were protected from anything that would make them sad. Anyone that got on their nerves just kicked out and killed. So Nehemiah had to have a little bit of courage to even appear sad in the court and then to explain why he was upset would have taken a little bit of courage, some guts. So he tells him exactly why he's upset. You guys are, I think, familiar enough with the story. And the king said to him, well, wh what do you request? What do you want? And then Nehemiah it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, I take that as like one of those quick, under your breath prayers. Like real quick, because you're about to ask for something. Like, oh, Jesus, help me. Lord Jesus, there's a fire. Real quick, because when there's a fire, you don't have time to think about what to pray. You just got to go, right? So it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Really, I think this is really quick. See, uh, but the thing about that prayer is that that real quick prayer was backed up with four months of prayer. You know, I really have this like pet peeve, what I call good luck prayers. I mean, and we, you know, I work at a church. A lot of our praying is good luck prayers. Oh, service is starting in 30 seconds. Let's pray. Right? I mean, like that, that I call that good luck prayer. Um, 
even even at college of prayer you know oh we're supposed to start let's pray i'm like well we've been praying for months i'm not sure that 10 more seconds is going to change anything like if that's what puts us over the top we probably shouldn't be at college of prayer but at the same time so i actually actually sometimes get on people's nerves because i i don't do the good luck prayer but now i'm starting to think okay maybe these little short spontaneous ones are not bad as long as they're not the only thing going on you know what i mean because he did the little quick prayer he didn't say well i've if I either prayed yesterday or I'm not praying at all, which is kind of my attitude sometimes. So he does the little quick, spontaneous prayer to center himself. But just bear in mind, he also has four months of prayer backing that little one up. Does that make sense? So I really think we need both. We need the like long history of prayer leading up to something but then also that ability to spontaneously quickly at the spur, you know at the spur of a moment pray uh and do both so he prays and that prayer coupled with four months of prayer preceding it gets a response he asks the king to provide him with an opportunity basically he's like can i leave jason did a great job explaining this last week can i leave can i get like an extended vacation somewhere around 12 years. I haven't even really had an adult job for 12 years yet. So to ask, I mean, he really, it was about 12 years before he ever came back. And then when he came back, he left again. So he's asking for 12 years off. So he, he asked for an opportunity. Then he asked for resources. He's like, and while I'm gone, can you give me all the stuff I need to rebuild this city? And the king gives him the time and the resources. And then also the king sends with him some officers from the army to protect him. And uh, that's called favor, boys and girls. Uh, verse 5, it says, if, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah. So that's the request for the time. Go to the next slide. Uh, he's asking for the letters to get, uh, you know, he, he wants to go to the forest and get timber and make beams for the gates and everything. I think Nehemiah knew what he was asking for because he knew the names and the forests and who was going to need a letter and where he, I mean, this was not spontaneous. He's had four months to, to ponder this. So I love opportunistic people in the Bible. Nehemiah was opportunistic. Like he was just waiting for the door to open. As soon as it opened, he jumped through it. You know, like the king's just asking, why are you sad? <laughs> He's like, I'm sad because my hometown's burned down, so I'd like you to give me time off and a bunch of stuff and some military escort so I can go fix it. That's why I don't ask people how they're doing. <laughs> Unless I have an hour. Luis always asks me, what's good? And I'm so literal, I'm, I just think of things that are good, like chocolate, puppies, you know, rainbows, those are good. But he's really asking me, how am I doing? But I, I'm so literal, I can't answer that. So that has nothing to do with the sermon. Just getting it out there. So he gets opportunity, resources, and protection. And the king gives him all of this stuff. 
I think there's a natural and a supernatural element going on here. Number one, Nehemiah has earned the king's trust over years, risking his life for the king. But also, Nehemiah has been praying for four months. I think God is at work behind the scenes, opening this door up, giving Nehemiah this opportunity and everything he needs to fulfill it. And Nehemiah has plotted this out. And in verse 8, Nehemiah explains exactly why he got what he wanted. He says, The king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. So earlier he used this word favor. I think this verse gives a great definition of what favor means. It's when the hand of God is on you. Favor is a good thing. Now think about, you know, favor is like where we get the word favorite. Uh, so you can think of it this way. It's kind of it as if God is saying that you're one of his favorites, which he is saying. Now, in a, then it gets a little more confusing because you know, Diana is God's favorite. But so is Maribel. So is Jeroboam. So that, do they have to fight it out? If this was a family with a bunch of immature kids, we would fight it out. I'm the favoritist. I'm the capital F favorite. But in, in God's household, you just relax and believe that you're the favorite and that it's okay that he has more than one favorite. You know, I'm God's favorite and so is everybody else. We each have favor and it's because of Jesus. Jesus gives us favor. And so God favors his, his children, particularly those that have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He favors them. That's not to say he doesn't provide for everybody, but there's favor that comes through Jesus for the believer. He gives favor. Now, Nehemiah's favor that he's talking about has to do with his calling, or I'm going to use the word assignment. Nehemiah has assignment, and his favor has to do with his assignment. And I'm telling you that you will have favor in the an area of assignment that God has given you. All right, so let me let me explain what I mean by that. My calling in life has a lot to do with our the denomination our church belongs to, the Christian and Missionary Alliance. My calling has to do with that, particularly seeing revival in it. So I have noticed, I haven't worked for this or tried for this, it's just happened. I have favor in the Christian Missionary Alliance, that if I went to a Baptist church, they don't care what I have to say. And, and even further, when I go to meet people, I can remember their names the first time I hear it. If they're in that context that where I have like favor in my calling, I can't remember other people's names like after a hundred times. I can remember if I've driven past a church been to a church. If I preached there, I remember exactly the sermon. But if you sent me to some other church somewhere else, I don't know if I've ever been there. There's just something about your assignment where God gives you favor. So it'd be like, like Josh and Rachel who are working in the Middle East. Rachel grew up in the Middle East, is back in the Middle East, and while she was in Philly, had favor with Middle Eastern people. Like, they just found her somehow. And she got along with them, and she befriended them. Now, is that is some of that her natural, like, tendencies growing up that way? Sure, but that doesn't mean it's not also favor. Because God arranged and orchestrated the circumstances of her life 
for that. So whatever your little assignment is from God, you will have favor for it. In fact, if you don't know what your assignment is, you need to start looking at areas where God gives you favor or like quick success, easy success. I'm not saying that you need to follow the path of least resistance, but I'm saying you might want to check it out. If God consistently is giving you opportunities to minister to a certain kind of people, you might, that might have to do with your assignment. You know, if you have favor in the business world or favor in the educational realm or you know, favor with a certain kind of people, you might want to pray about whether that's part of your calling. Because God gives you favor to match your assignment. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, favor's a good thing. Uh, having the hand of God on you is, is how he personifies it here. It's the idea of having God's hand on you. Now go to the next slide for me, Shay. This is the last one. Having the hand of God on you will bring you two things. You might want to even write this down. This is, this is good stuff. Having the hand of God on you will bring you two things. Favor and opposition. You know, I'm not, oh God, I'm not Joel Osteen. All right, I believe in favor, but I also believe in opposition. Right? It's not all pink roses and, and unicorns. Even a unicorn has a horn. It's, you know, it's not all wonderful. God's hand on you will give you favor and opportunity, but it will also cause opposition to come against you, especially as you fulfill your assignment, your calling. Look at this. Uh, so, when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite, you guys, you know, not the other Sanballat, Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So, again, when, when Nehemiah says, all this good stuff happened to me because the hand of my God was on me, it's only two verses later that we see he's opposed, right? Sanballat and Tobiah. Everybody say, Sanballat and Tobiah. We're going to actually spend probably a week or two, especially talking about Sanballat, because he keeps popping up in this book, and he's the main person that opposes Nehemiah. And the way Sanballat opposes Nehemiah is actually a picture of how Satan opposes God's children. He acts... Sambalot never actually gets to lay a hand on Nehemiah. He just tries to intimidate him and confuse him and scare him and slander him, but he never actually gets to touch him. But I don't want to give away a future sermon. Now, Sambalot's name actually uh, comes from the name of a pagan moon deity. And I don't, you know, just for your own purposes, if you rearrange the letters in Sanballat, it spells Satan Ball, which I don't, I don't think means anything, but yeah, maybe. Dan and I are going to figure that out. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean anything. So. Sanballat and 
uh, Tobiah, <coughs> they are displeased because someone has come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. They're not personally, they don't care about Nehemiah. They're not upset at Nehemiah, they're upset at the assignment. Make sure you understand that. The opposition that they have is not, they don't care about Nehemiah. They didn't care who Nehemiah was. They probably didn't know who Nehemiah was until he took up this task. It's the assignment that they're opposing, not Nehemiah himself. And they only oppose Nehemiah so long as he's fulfilling the assignment. Because if Nehemiah threw in the towel, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't care about him anymore. So you're going to, at some point in your life, face some level of opposition as you try to fulfill your calling in life. You're going to get opposition. Number one, you need to not take that opposition personally. You need to know that it's the task or the assignment that's being opposed. You know, so number one, don't get offended. And number two, don't get cocky. Oh, look at me. Devil, he's hunting me down. No, devil's got bigger fish to fry than any of us. Because he can only go after one thing at a time. Because he's not all present, all knowing, or all powerful. He's just old and smart. But you're going to face opposition in your area of, of assignment, in your area of calling at some point. If you never face opposition, you might want to check yourself and see if you're really doing anything. About three or four years ago, I was, I was uh, coaching a younger pastor, if you can believe that there are younger ones. And he was telling me, he's like, all my friends, all my friends seem like they're experienced spiritual warfare. Satan never really bothers me. I was like, oh, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, not that you want to invite that kind of thing, but just because it's happening doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. And if it ain't happening, I'm not sure you're doing something right. Um, I don't think we're ever really. I don't think we're ever supposed to lose in spiritual warfare, but I don't think we're supposed to run from it or ignore it or avoid it either. In fact, a lot of Jesus' teaching about spiritual warfare in opposition to the Bible, we're on the offense, not the defense. Why am I talking about spiritual warfare? I thought we were talking about Sanballat. We're talking about Sanballat because in the New Testament, we learn that the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, basically demons. In the New Testament, we learn that we do not fight against other people. We fight against evil spirits. So you read these passages in the Old Testament about Israel coming in and like massacring a people group. I think that literally happened. I think, and I think God told them to do it. I think in the New Testament, we get a deeper revelation that our real enemy is not people we disagree with, but it's actually demons. And we're supposed to treat those demons with as much contempt as in the Old Testament they treated the, the nations that opposed God. Does that make sense? Like, when God would send Israel into cities to wipe them out, he would say, don't leave anything living. Get the men, get the women, get the babies. Do not leave anything living. That's the kind of ferocity that we're to attack the enemy with in spiritual warfare and to attack sin with. 
Don't leave a little bit. Don't leave a root. Don't leave a cute little baby sin. Cut it all out. So I don't think in the new I don't think in the new covenant we're supposed to go wipe out people groups. I think we're supposed to wipe out sin. I think we're supposed to wipe out demons and love people. Because really the ones that oppose us, even people that oppose us, are not really the enemy. It's Satan. We do not wage war against flesh and blood. If it has flesh and it has blood, it's not your enemy. Okay, that's it. another way to, to translate. So we fight against a spiritual enemy. And when we get to this uh, section on Sambalat, we'll see exactly what his tactics are like and, and how we can respond to them. But again, the, the opposition really is more about the assignment than it is the person. Because if someone other than Nehemiah stepped into that role, they would oppose that person. <coughs> and if Nehemiah decided he wasn't going to do this, they would probably stop opposing him. So having the hand of God on you will bring you both favor and opposition. The favor is worth the opposition. Uh, I mean, I would say maybe more than anything, the question that I get from people or the, the area that they struggle with is I, they just want to know their calling in life. They just want to know why they were put on earth, what their purpose is. I forget who said this. So this is not an original thought, but I can't think of who said it originally. The two greatest days of your life are when you were born and when you find out why you were born. I think everybody wants to know what their calling is. Everybody wants to know what their assignment is, what their purpose is, what their destiny is. Those are all words for generally the same idea. You need to know that God's hand is on you to fulfill that destiny, but you need to know that there's opposition also against you. And trust in the favor of God for your assignment and be prepared for the opposition. Don't be surprised when things don't go perfect. Don't be surprised when there's opposition. I mean, my, my assignment in life has mostly to do with revival and renewal in churches. You would think no Christians would be against that, but many are. In fact, if less of them were, we would actually have it. Right? I mean, clearly there are Christians who are against revival, or else we'd have it. Now, they don't, wouldn't say they're against revival. They would probably just say they're against some of the excesses or the annoying things that, unfortunately, company fake revival. Mostly, it's fear and control. But be prepared for opposition. Now, I want to do something today that's it's a little it's a little silly, but I think it's it's helpful because sometimes we need these kind of tactile things to help us understand uh, what God is doing. I think that's why God gives us things like baptism and communion, so that we can experience truth with our senses, with our five senses. So I want to go back to Isaiah 61, which we opened the service up with and which Rachel referenced. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read a couple selected verses. Again, Isaiah wrote this 
Jesus owned this, and we can apply it as well as we are in Christ. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. Then in verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Then in verse 4, then they will rebuild ancient ruins. They will raise up former devastations. They will repair ruined cities. If that's not what Nehemiah is doing, I don't know what else. I mean, he's exactly rebuilding ancient cities, devastated areas, repairing ruined cities. You will be called priests of the Lord. You'll be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations and the riches, and in the riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you'll have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they'll shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. And then in verse 11, as the earth brings forth its sprouts, as, as a garden causes things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. So what does Isaiah 61 have to do with Nehemiah 2? Favor. Nehemiah had favor, which enabled him to overpower opposition. Isaiah 61, Isaiah is writing, he's been anointed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus shows us that that verse is ultimately fulfilled in him. So Jesus was anointed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And I, I really think that in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, every year is the favorable year of the Lord. So 2015 is the favorable year of the Lord because we move at that point. I still, I still think the Jewish calendar has purpose. I th still think it has meaning. I still think it's helpful. But I think in Jesus, those you know Sabbath things and those festivals and are, are available all the time through Jesus. But I, I, I wouldn't, I don't think it'd be bad if the church maybe synced up with the Jewish calendar a little better. As a side note, I don't even know why we have a church calendar when God already gave us a calendar. Um, but we made our own up. But I think in Jesus, every year is the favorable year of the Lord. So if, you, if you're like, well, do I have favor? Are you in Jesus? Because if you're in Christ, you have favor. If you're outside of Christ, you don't. You have opposition without favor. So Nehemiah described favor as the good hand of my God was on me. So again, this is just kind of a physical, tactile thing to do. I want to ask you to put your hand on your head. Okay? All right. You all look can't believe you all did that without me saying Simon says. This is just kidding. Put your hand on your head. I'll do it. Okay. Your hand is not literally God's hand, but you are a high, you are a priest. Uh, and so your hand can represent God's hand. You know, I, I bet if you laid it on someone else, you could say, well, I have a, you know, I have authority to speak for God as it agrees with the Bible. So now that your hand is laid on yourself, feel the weight of, of the, the Lord's hand on you, what it feels like. Let's make a little change here. Find someone near you, put your hand on their head and 
they put theirs on yours. It'd probably be better if you someone you know. You got two hands, so you guys can all curve and hop in there somewhere. All right. Sarah, jump it. You got multiple hands, right? There you go. It is funny how foolish a lot of you look right now, but but it's good. All right. This is what I want to ask you to do. Okay. This is what I want to ask you to do. Your hand represents the hand of the Lord on them. Okay? And their hand represents the hand of the Lord on you. So I'm just quickly going to ask you to bless them with the, the, the hand, you know, the, the good hand of the Lord or the hand of, the good, of their good God is on them. Just quickly pray blessing over them to fulfill their assignment that's given from God. Okay? So each one of you pray for the other just you know, briefly. All right. Take a couple seconds to wrap up. Now, if you're done praying, really, you, you four need to get back in that position. Look how elaborate this system was. This is amazing right here. This is like a, uh, like a game that you would like there are four people. Each one has to have a hand on someone's head, but they can't have their hand on the same person's head. And it's a leap year. How do they do it? Now, I had you do that because if I just told you God has his hand on you, oh, that sounds so nice. Sometimes you need to actually feel a hand on you to know what that feels like. All right? But that's why I had you do that. So I think actually the, the most important thing was that you just got prayed for. Um, but I want to pray for you right now. I just want to wrap up in prayer. The main thing I wanted to do is get you all touching each other and praying for each other. I want to pray for you that opposition would not surprise you and that opposition would not overtake you. Uh, it, it, it will come at some point and it will come repeatedly, but God's given you favor and his hand is on you to succeed in your assignment. Not to succeed in getting wealthy, unless that's your assignment. Probably not, though. His hand is on you to succeed in fulfilling his assignment for you. So, Lord, uh, I thank you for favor. I thank you that it's provided in Jesus Christ, that it's not something we earned or obtained through works. And, Lord, I, when your hand is on us, we want favor like Nehemiah had, Lord, that we can make a request of a king and receive the resources and the opportunities that we need that it makes no sense why he got it. And it would make no sense why things work for us uh, with the limited power that we have. I pray for favor. I pray that opposition would not catch us off guard, Lord. 
I pray that we would not lose heart when we face resistance. I pray that resistance would strengthen us instead of distract us and discourage us. We accept that the, the, the cost of favor is opposition, but that the favor can overcome the opposition just like it did in Nehemiah's life, Lord. We receive that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, guys. Thanks again.